0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our webinar today. This is our um, second of a two part series on psychosocial hazards. My name's Alexandra Tyrrell. I'm a managing associate at Denton's in the employment and safety team in Melbourne. Uh, So, last month we considered um, psychosocial hazards and we looked at the, the legislation and spoke about conflict management. This month, we're going to focus on on some case law and and what um, amounts to a psychosocial hazard and um, what the impacts can be. And we're also gonna have a really practical focus to, to look at what needs to be done. What do employers need to be doing really right now? And for that component, I'm joined by Amy Towers, Amy's the founder and principal advisor of Risk Collective, and she is an excellent work health and safety consultant, and I'm really pleased to be joined with her today. Um, I think it's also great to be joined with her today because this this area of law really is about health and safety and employment law or HR being combined and working together. So thanks for joining me, Amy. Just before we kick off, do you have any opening remarks you wanted to make about this area of the law or what you're seeing and how businesses are responding to it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said before,
1: Ali, that, um, you know, it it being a practical session today, and that's what we're really aiming to do. Because from what I've seen, businesses understand that, you know, in a lot of jurisdictions, this law is already in place and and it's likely to come in in Victoria and some others, which you'll touch on. But what I think people don't, aren't across or don't have uh, in front of them are the practical tools. So we've really designed this session to inform you about, okay, what does it look like in a practical sense and how do you go about it? So we're really hoping to give you those, um, um,
0: those insights today. Thanks, Amy. That's definitely what we're hoping um, to achieve and spend a bit of time on. I'll also just note there is a and a um, question box, which should be at the top of the screen. Feel free to drop any questions you might have in there. And if we have some time at the end of this webinar, we will get to them. Uh, and just before we get into the substantive part, um, I'll just play our Acknowledgement of Country. Nangamalari. Manti Manya and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here here today I would like to recognise the stories, traditions and living cultures
1: of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea
0: and community and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. Ladi. Okay, so in terms of what we're going to cover today, psychosocial hazards has been spoken about quite a lot um, in lots of different sort of arenas, Um, but I think it's really important for us to note that um, there has been commentary around the regulations in Victoria not having been yet finalised or or enacted. But I think it's really important to remember that work health safety laws already cover psychosocial hazards. The um, definition of health uh, is defined to include psychological health. So what we're speaking about today is really something that businesses and employers need to be thinking about now, including um, those businesses in, in Victoria, because these are already obligations and the regulators are also already focusing on these areas. I know WorkSafe Victoria released a corporate plan which had a focus on mental health. And it also told us that mental health is a growing challenge in workplaces. And WorkSafe estimates that by this year, mental injury claims are going to account for 50% of annual weekly benefits. So it's clearly going to continue to be a massive focus. Um, we're also going to talk through some, some case law, some case studies, and I just want to provide a bit of a warning that um, some of the, the facts are quite serious and disturbing. It centers around sexual harassment and violence, so um, just wanted to make everyone aware that we'll be talking about some cases like that. We'll talk about very briefly the state of the, the regulations, why are the regulations necessary and we're aiming to spend a fair bit of time on um, what businesses actually need to be doing. What do you need to know? So what is a psychosocial hazard? Again, you've probably um, heard of a lot of them and perhaps even seen a number of the items on this list. I think some of the obvious ones are sexual harassment, bullying, violence and aggression. Potentially some of the less obvious ones might be low job control or poor support. Um, But it's also important to um, know that these different hazards can interact with each other and influence each other. And Amy, do you want to talk about that, maybe how that works? How how do they influence and interact with each other?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and this is something uh, when businesses are identifying these hazards, they must do to understand what the risk is. So you must be able to understand what these risks are and understand if there are any other psychosocial hazards or even physical hazards in the workplace that can impact on that risk. And so an example of that might be, um, you know, you might have you might identify bullying as a, a potential psychosocial hazard or, you know, it's a psychosocial hazard currently within your workplace. Um, so what you then would need to consider is, is there anything else impacting on that? So um, is there high job demands um, at the moment that could increase the risk of bullying occurring because of the research tells us that, um, that where there is high job demand there's more likely to be bullying? Um, so they're the types of things that you would need to consider, those interacting hazards.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Amy. And hopefully um, at the end, we'll provide some really practical direction about how these different things can be considered and how you really put pen on paper and work out what you need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of cases to sort of demonstrate what a psychosocial hazard may be and what it looks like I guess factually Um, and one psychosocial hazard is high job demands and the draft Victorian regulations define that to be sustained or repeated physical, mental or emotional effort, which is unreasonable or frequently exceeds the employee's skills or capacity. So the first case on the screen was a workers' compensation claim case. Um, Miss Carr was an office manager with lots of responsibilities. She had to lead teams. She had to liaise with the accountant and the bank. She had to order office supplies, set up payroll, and the list went on. Um, She began to experience depression and anxiety, and she said many times that she was not keeping up or coping with her workload. So she made those types of comments, and she really received little to no response. Uh, She then made a workers' compensation claim alleging cumulative stress. It was actually rejected at first instance, saying that um, the injury had resulted from reasonable management action, but it was appealed. And the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission um, held what's what's on the screen. It said that the imposition of unattainable level of workload and work intensity in the absence of adequate support is unreasonable management action. So this was obviously in the workers' compensation, jurisdiction and and legislation, but it clearly shows how high job demands can impact um, psychological harm and, and, and cause psychological harm. And, you know, so if you do have staff that are complaining of workload, it is something that needs to be considered and addressed. Um, And, you know, you might need to think about whether more support is required or any other steps need to be taken. Another possible psychosocial hazard is violence and aggression in the workplace. And before getting to the case that is on the slide, um, I think it's worth mentioning that WorkSafe Victoria at least is prosecuting in relation to psychosocial hazards generally but also has prosecuted in relation to violence and aggression in the workplace in August last year the Victorian government and a charity who provided residential care for vulnerable young people who had been removed from their families were involved in in this sort of a prosecution In that case, staff were punched and kicked by a young person over a number of months. Sometimes staff would um, retreat to the office to try and take refuge and and get away from this young person. Um, And there was various documentation around that noted that um, this young person had particular triggers um, for his behavior. And one of the triggers were if he was unfamiliar with the workers around him, And other documentation also discouraged staff from seeking refuge in in their offices. So the charge alleged that it was reasonably practicable to reduce the risk of injury by providing and maintaining systems of work in which the documentation did not discourage people from taking refuge in the office and recognized that particular workers shouldn't be rostered on to work with this young person if they are at greater risk, i.e. if they weren't known to the young person. So the Victorian government and the charity actually pleaded guilty in relation to the risk of occupational violence. And they were each fined $55,000 without the conviction. But it was noted that if um, they had pleaded, if they had not pleaded guilty, it would have been 110,000 each with the conviction. So I just want to touch on that because it's quite recent. It's WorkSafe Victoria prosecuting in these areas already. But the case um, on the slide is a really sad case, and and it was from a little while ago, so you may have heard of it. Um, This involved um, a lady by the name of Miss Matthews. She was a labourer as part of a large construction company. And throughout the course of her employment, which is around three years, she was subjected to abuse, to bullying, to sexual harassment and Violent sexual threats and remarks. And the facts are really quite extreme um, to the point where the construction company didn't try and deny any of them. Um, But I won't go into a whole lot of detail just to give you an idea. Uh, Remarks were made to her such as, You are a spastic, a bimbo, get out, you are effing useless. When she was cleaning out a drainage pipe, someone came up behind her and grabbed her by the hips and pretended to perform a sexual act. And one day when she announced she was going to lunch, someone said to her, I'm going to follow you home, rip your clothes off and rape you. So she tried to address those concerns. She tried to do that by going to the site foreman who laughed at her. She then called who she thought was HR and they said to her, why don't you come over to my place? We'll have a drink and we'll talk about it. She perhaps unsurprisingly developed anxiety, stress, depression, even some physical jaw pain from grinding her teeth. And she was unlikely to be able to return to any form of work. The court ultimately held that she had sta- sustained very considerable psychiatric injuries as a direct consequence of the bullying, the abuse, and the sexual harassment, and that that will that has and will continue to diminish the quality of her life. And she was ultimately awarded one point three million dollars. So. The violence, the aggression, the sexual harassment she experienced was clearly, very clearly, a serious psychosocial hazard and caused really serious harm, um, which resulted in the damages that were ultimately awarded. So violence and aggression is another psychosocial hazard. The final case that I wanted to talk to is um, on vicarious trauma. Again, something, another thing that could be or is it a psychosocial hazard? For those of you who might not be aware, vicarious trauma is where someone has exposure to another person's trauma, and that has the same harmful effect on that person as though they experienced the trauma themselves. So it's really relevant for people who work in professions where they're helping people, and their role involves empathy. So that that could be journalists, it could be um, you know family services, it can be lawyers um lots of different professions might be um vicarious trauma might be a psychosocial hazard for various professions vicarious trauma received quite a bit of attention after a case last year where a prosecutor working for the office of public prosecution suffered vicarious trauma but prior to that there was um another case which involved the age and that is the one that's on the screen and involved a person whose pseudonym was yz so YZ was a journalist and she worked and reported on a number of well-known and traumatic traumatic stories during her employment. That included the Black Saturday fires, she attended murder, death and rape crime scenes. She also reported on Carl Williams and the gangland wars, after which she received threats to her safety. And after reporting on one particularly distressing event, which was um, the murder of a child by their father, she broke down and she said, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, I've had enough of death and destruction. As a result of that response, she was transferred to sports journalism for 12 months. But after that time, the age said, we want you um, doing reporting on Supreme Court cases. She said she didn't want to do that because crime reporting had, um, you know, led her to how how she had felt and that she she wasn't coping. That's why she left the crime reporting in the first place. But she was asked a number of times to reconsider this. And on the third time of being asked to be a court reporter, she agreed. She then actually ended up reporting on the murder trial of the murder that she had attended the crime scene for being the child that was murdered by the, the father. Um, And as a consequence, she had trouble sleeping because she was having nightmares. She began abusing alcohol and she also became increasingly tearful at work and developed post-traumatic stress disorder. And a few years later, she commenced proceedings against the age, alleging it had breached its duty of care. Now, the court found that the risk of psychiatric injury to, to YZ was foreseeable, and they thought that, that for various reasons, but including that YZ was required to report on events that were traumatic, they were violent, they were disturbing, and it was pretty obvious to a reasonable employer that the cumulative effect um, would create an injury, a psychological injury. The age also had general knowledge of the relationship between the risk of exposure to trauma and an injury, and finally she had complained about her concerns and manifested real signs of distress. So. For those reasons, the the court found that the age um, had breached its duty of care. It's worth knowing that the age had taken some steps to address this potential risk, and that was having an EAP, so an employee um, assistance program They had informal peer support groups and they also had training courses. But the court said that that was not enough, mainly because a lot of that involved um, the employee initiating and and going to find help themselves. The age said, the court said that the age should have been providing training and instruction to all new journalists as as to the nature of the trauma and the distress that they were likely to be exposed to. They should have been training their senior staff about trauma awareness, and they should have obviously intervened when um, the employee exhibited signs of of distress. So again, another pretty serious case um, demonstrates that vicarious trauma is another very serious psychosocial hazard and risk that needs to be appropriately managed if that's relevant to to the work and the job. So they're the three cases that I wanted to talk about just to demonstrate what sort of I guess practical things we're talking about. And on the next slide we've just got um, a bit of a pyramid in relation to the health and safety laws. Um, There's a lot of layers in this area and so um, I was wondering Amy if you can just spend a little bit of time talking through what all this means and how they interact. Hmm.
1: So I think if we um, go back to what you mentioned at the start, um, which was around, you know, whether or not the jurisdiction that you're operating in has introduced psychological health or psychosocial risk regulations, which you can see is the second tier there. Each, state and territory has a health and safety act and that imposes a primary duty of care on every business and you explained that that term health includes psychological health so let's forget about any regulations and you know those new laws around psychological health at the moment every business part of its duty of care is to identify psychosocial risks as well as physical risks and manage those risks so far as reasonably practicable. So do as much as they possibly can uh, to control those risks. Um, so let's not wait until regulations are introduced, um, say for Victoria, we're not waiting around. This, this is an obligation already. Um, so the Act imposes that duty. And there's penalties if a business fails to meet its duty of care, like the examples that you just gave before, Ali, if they came under health and safety law, that would be an example of a business not meeting its primary duty of care to protect the worker's psychological health. Then we move into the regulations, because the Act isn't really that specific or prescriptive around what the duty looks like. It pretty much just says, you've got a duty to do these things. The regulations give us a little bit more of an understanding. So prior to now, you know, the regulations were heavily focused on the physical risk. So you'd find a chapter on asbestos or, um, you know, hazardous chemicals or manual tasks, those types of things. But what it failed to do was to uh, prescribe how a business met its primary duty of care under the Act to manage psychological risks. So where, that's where this new, these new laws are coming in is under that part there, just to give a little bit more prescription. How do we go about doing those things? Then if we move into the codes of practice, our third tier on the screen. The codes of practice are um, developed under the regulations, so they give us a lot more practical information on how we meet our duty of care under the Act and the regulations. So you will find one, you know, for each of those areas under the regulations. And I I often tell businesses, refer to the code of practice. It's a lot more practical than just opening up the regulations because it gives you a bit of prescription. But the codes of practice are super helpful in it. It really explains what that part of the legislation means. It gives you examples. It gives you um, scenarios. It can even give you some templates to use as well. So it's a lot more helpful in a business understanding how it meets its obligations while it's not legislation as such, the regulators do use that as like the standard. So it's always quite crucial for a business to refer to that code and say we should be doing all these things um, or if they've got a better way of doing it they can refer to that um, but that those codes are the standard. There will be some things, some hazard areas that aren't covered by a code or we might need more further detail. So Um, So for the jurisdictions that have introduced the psychological or psychosocial risk regulations, I'll just take Queensland as an example. So you'll find that chapter in the regulations now in Queensland. They've also got a code of practice that's for psychosocial risk. But if you wanted to understand um, bullying in more detail, that's where you'd go to that last tier, that guidance material, and you can find more detailed information um, say from WorkSafe Queensland, they've got a specific guide on prevention prevention and response to bullying. So that's where you can reference that material there. So that's, that's in essence how that legal framework works. But any code of practice and guidance material should be used by business to understand what they have to do under the Act and the regulations to meet those obligations.
0: Thanks, Amy. I think that's really good to sort of conceptually understand how they all working to each other and on that we've just got a quick slide in terms of the um the regulations and where they have been introduced and where they haven't yet and where there's not talk about it yet um not sure if you want to make any comment on that amy but otherwise i think a question we have asked is whether the slides will be available and we can send the slides so this is something you can reflect on later um assuming you don't have anything specific to say on that Amy I'm going to flick to the next slide which we've just got some general statistics in relation to mental health in the workplace Um, I think it really shows the prevalence of of the concerns and, and why they need to be managed and addressed and perhaps in some way a reason for why you know these regulations are being brought into effect but Amy do you want to just make a quick comment on how we've ended up you know having regulations in some states and why other states are considering them
1: Yeah, sure. So just a bit of a background to that is that some time ago, um, the ministers across the country who are responsible for work health and safety uh, requested that there was a review done into health and safety law. Which should be happening every five years or so, anyway. And so Marie Boland um, was charged with the review. And basically, part of her review, she was looking at a whole heap of things within the health and safety law, how it worked, is it is it working as intended? And um, she consulted through that review process with industry associations, and so did a huge consultation process. And in her report, basically, what she said there was very clear feedback from all of those people that she consulted with that that framework that we just showed you, that tiered framework, didn't adequately address how businesses should be managing psychosocial risk. So one of her recommendations, I think she... I think it was around 50 or so recommendations that she had across, you know, improving the health and safety legislation. One of those recommendations was to introduce a framework within the regulations around how to manage psychosocial risks. All the states agreed to it. Uh, Victoria was one of the first ones that said, yep, we'll do it and got the wheels in motion. But that looks like they're going to be probably one of the last ones. So everyone else sort of got in before it because. Health and safety law is state-based. They choose their own timings for when things happen. So that's why we've seen them coming in at different times. Um, We've got Northern Territory, was it Northern Territory? Sorry, there was one that said uh, 1st of July before on the previous screen. That's about to come in, which really will just leave ACT South Australia. So I'm sure that won't be far behind and Victoria. But again, let's not, I think, don't get too caught up in start dates just think we've already got the obligation. What are we doing about it? Um, yeah. So that's always my advice to businesses. Don't worry about when it's going to be introduced in your jurisdiction. Get started on it if you haven't already.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into what do we actually need to be doing? Um, so as I said, we want to try and get into the nitty gritty and really figure out what steps do businesses need to be taking? Um, so Amy, Amy, Do you want to take us through some of the things you think businesses should be doing? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So um, I think, again, let's make this practical. Um, I think the first thing is, you know, oftentimes we're contacted or if, you know, someone like us are getting involved in helping a business through this process, we tend to be engaged or contacted by middle management or HR or compliance to help out. I think one of the first things that um, businesses need to do is ensure that their leadership team are across this and truly understand what this means um, so that there is that commitment and they, there is that investment ready to go to get the ball rolling across this so I always say and not just me based on um, again health and safety um, guidance material that you need absolutely need that leadership commitment so if the leaders aren't aware of what psychosocial risks are what their obligations are to manage these risks that's a perfect place to start to run a session, whether it be um, you internally who can deliver that session, or if you need to uh, go external to get someone to come in and explain that, run workshops, train the trainer, doesn't matter. As long as those leaders have a good understanding of what this is all about, um, it could even be you sending them this session. Um, But that's a really good place to start. So you need to have that commitment if you're going to start addressing these things. Again, like anything else, any other program you introduce, you're going to need some investment um, and you're going to need resources and time. And and so, yeah, having that commitment is crucial to um, an effective program around managing psychosocial risks. I think it could be helpful too. Again, every business um, is different. But thinking about a committee, a subcommittee, a team meeting, Um, or even existing committee that can take this on and so that it's not just up to one person to manage it Um, so if you've got an existing health and safety committee or a risk committee or um, like I said you could create um, you know a subcommittee that particularly focuses on this as a project Um, And what that will do because there's an obligation throughout the whole process of managing psychosocial risk there's a legal obligation here that you must consult with your workforce when you're identifying hazards and controlling the risk. So by having a committee um, throughout the process, or uh, it can be part of an agenda item at a team meeting. That's your way, you're setting up the foundations to not only make decisions about what that looks like, this whole program, but you're, you're giving an opportunity to discuss that around the table and then determine how that information is going to be fed out and fed back into that group there. So that, that can be a really good way to, when you're thinking about what, what are some of the first steps, I would say start thinking about that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good thing to remember that consultation is actually an absolute obligation and that these are some of the practical ways you can take steps to meet that obligation, but also inform yourself of what you need to know to manage these risks.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, It's also, sorry, (laughs) I was just going to say, it's also quite important, I missed the point around having leadership represented there. So leadership, so you can have decisions. You don't want to be meeting every month or however often and going, oh, we need to do these things, but there's no commitment to getting those things done. So it's good to have that leadership commitment represented in that forum.
0: All right, and gathering information.
1: Okay, so once I think you've established that the leaders really understand what needs to happen, you've got a way to... Um, you know, come up and decide with how you're going to approach this through a committee or a team or a group, whatever that looks like for your business, then you need to think about how do we understand what those risks, these psychosocial risks look like for our business. So you showed the slide earlier, Ali, where it's identifying all the different types of psychosocial hazards. So what your job is, is really to say which of these could be present within our workplace and which are the ones we know are already present. So that's essentially what you're trying to do. Now, you may not have had any serious incidents like some of the cases that you showed before. You might not have workers' comp claims and you might not have those scenarios that have played out that are quite significant. But remember, we're not just looking for the stuff that has happened. We have to show that we are being proactive I'm really looking for, could this happen? Is it foreseeable for our workplace, okay? So there's a process that you need to go in and gather some internal data, and then you can gather some external data to help you understand what that risk really looks like. And I'll just touch on those things. So um, when we're talking about internal data, um, it's really about going back and going, have we had incidents? Maybe yes, maybe no. Even if you haven't, it doesn't mean you stop there. We continue on workers' compensation records, uh, meeting minutes, so it may be through team meetings or committee meetings where maybe workload's been identified or maybe staff have raised concerns around sexual harassment or um, exposure to vicarious trauma. And so going back on those meeting notes where maybe risks are addressed, you can pick up if that's been a tone in those meetings and it's something that you can say, oh, okay, well, that has been raised before. Um, Absentee records, we know there's a strong link between you know, workplace culture and absentee records. Um, And so culture could be linked to, you know, high job demands, poor support, those types of things. And then surveys as well. I know lots of organizations are already running workplace culture surveys, so they can tell you a lot as well. So, and that can identify things like presenteeism, where people are coming to work, but not being productive because they're impacted psychologically. Um, And it could also be audit reports. Um, you mentioned before about you know worksafe already acting on these things so there's lots of examples of workplaces you know that have had worksafe visit and they're inquiring into how do you manage bullying or how do you manage workplace stress generally and they're having to produce re- um, uh, you know documentation around how they manage that if they're not doing that they could issue them a, a worksafe would issue an improvement notice so you could get this done. So going back on those sort of reports, yeah. Can help you do those things when we're talking about external data part of your obligation and this is more so the officers of the business you know the ones that are accountable for what the business has in place it can't be you know blinkers on this is what our organization's risks are you need to look outside what's the industry what's happening within your industry so stepping outside your in uh, sorry your workplace but within your industry what's the data telling you and that's, you can easily get that information. Um, a number of the regulators put together injury hotspots where it shows you the body for, say, education or for healthcare, and it shows you how much uh, stress workers' compensation claims are happening within your industry and what they're caused from. So, again, it could be high job demands, you know, bullying, sexual harassment and the like. So that information informs you of what those potential risks look
0: like. And I think Amy, as an example, we were talking earlier, is perhaps the retail industry, and that there's mm-hmm. is it occupational violence that seems to be something that's a general concern in that industry. So I guess in that situation, your officers, so um, the people that are making the decisions about the business, should be aware of those sorts of things. Absolutely. So that is part of your role.
1: You could say, well, oh, that hasn't happened really happened to us yet, but it's got the potential to. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely has the potential to. And so you are expected to be abreast of and keep up to date with what's happening with your industry in within your industry because that informs you of what's a foreseeable risk. Um, so that can be quite insightful, keeping an eye on those things. Um, and just lastly, yeah, the regulator website. So that's where you can go to get that information. You can type in your industry. Um, and it will list the common hazards for your industry. So it's not hard to find this external information. Um, I've just worked on a project... Uh, in education, where part of the external data, I did a whole heap of research. So, not my own research. I looked for the research. So, research within Australia and in other countries around, you know, psychosocial risks and it's, and and what the key ones are for people working in an education sector. Um, and it highlighted what those were. So, um, and that which matched up very nicely with what we got from the internal data as well. So. Um, you know, there's lots of information out there to help you understand what those risks
0: look like for your sector. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway point, that perhaps the regulator website's a good place to start. It's got industry-specific information. Um, so that's, that's good to know. That's very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about a, a risk register? How can how can everyone make use of this lovely document? And what is it? <laughs> okay, what is a risk register? If you don't
1: have a risk register, um, or really if you don't have any health and safety systems at all, this is a perfect place to start to document all your health and safety risks. But let's think of it in the context of, okay, we're starting to gather this information around, like internally we've gathered this information, we've got some external data, now what do we do with it? so maybe you know that high job demands is probably your highest risk and there may be um, vicarious trauma is your second and maybe poor supports your third. So this is, you can start using this template to document these things. So that's where your hazards would go. You can see the first column there. That's where we start documenting these things. Now, we're not saying you have to use this template, but this template has actually come from, Um, one of the codes of practice um, for managing psychosocial risk. So this is where that legal framework that we went through before and saying the codes of practice can be really helpful because it gives you templates and ideas about how to go through this process. So this is where you document or a way that you can document what those risks look like. So you would be putting down, if you were going to use this template or something similar, you're documenting those risks that you're identifying as being foreseeable. Um, So you've you've noted all those down, um, but then you could potentially have a list of 20 risks and then you go, oh, that's overwhelming. Where do we start? Okay. So then, you know, you work through each of those columns and then at the end of it, you will have a neat little plan really. It guides you into, okay, which one should we focus on first? Because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to understand. So we might, we we'll, we know it's a risk. That's why we've documented it. So again, if we take high job demand, the example that they've got there, the next thing we need to think about is how much of a risk is this really for our business? So they they're asking, you know, what's the frequency that workers are exposed to this? Well, if it's once a year, that's not frequent. But if it was, you know, say uh, aggression and violence in retail, it could be daily for some some um, retail workers. Then how long is that exposure? Is it a short-term exposure or is it long-term exposure? So considering the frequency and the, the duration of exposure, that gives us a good sense of how much of a risk it is and it helps you prioritise, okay? If that's a, if that's going to be a high risk, we really need to get onto that because that's where, you know, something's likely to happen and if it does happen, it's probably not going to look very great. So we need really need to get onto that. Um, we were talking earlier about impacting hazards. You can see here that this tool and the guidance material, and even for those states that now have psychosocial risk regulations, it does say you need to consider impacting hazards. Is there anything else at play in the work environment that increases the risk of that particular hazard? So you can see on that one there, the high, high work demands, they've identified um, aggressive customers and low support from supervisors really impacts and increases the risk for high job demand in that work environment and then it gets you to start thinking about what existing controls we have in place so you might already have some things in place but they might not be effective so it's getting you to think about those things what more do we need to do and then it's allocating resources time frames and then monitoring that how effective is that So this is a fantastic tool that you can use if you're not sure what to do once you know what those risks are, put it into a risk register or something like this and map it out this way. It's a really good step to take um, just to get an idea of what that landscape looks like for you.
0: Yeah, I think that's some really good um, guidance and starting point. But I was wondering, Amy, if I can ask you about um, a recent case which was in the media which I read and just thought oh my gosh like what would you do um it was people may have heard of it it was a Queensland case and it involved a museum taxidermist um and someone in the business had uh contracted bacterial disease known as Q fever while prepping their exhibits um and the woman suffered a serious spinal abscess And I think it was the first known um, incident of Q fever in this industry Um, and the work health safety manager as an employee, not as a director of the business, was prosecuted for failing to comply with her health and safety duties. Um, But the health and safety manager had actually attended a seminar and um, actively sought out further information about these sorts of diseases. And she was advised that the probability of Q fever in this industry was very low Despite that, she went away and I think started doing a risk assessment, but didn't finish it. Um, And as I said, she was prosecuted for failing to meet her health and safety obligations. Mm. So, Amy, what do you think? She's told the risk is low. The risk is very low. What should she have been doing? And could she have used something like this risk register to to avoid at least being prosecuted for for this um, incident?
1: Yeah, that one was um quite a unique situation. But I think if we put it in the context again of, you know, if we think about that, in, um, uh, sorry, replace the Q fever with, say, a psychosocial risk, yes, absolutely, having it documented because I think she had started the risk assessment, she didn't complete it and she didn't inform her management of what that risk looks like. So if you are the person who is in charge of this project, having this documented and making sure that you've got that committee or that team around you so that it's not just you holding all this information, you can share it amongst a group of people so that they can help understand what that risk looks like. That's going to be a lot more helpful and and, and probably protect you if you're, you were someone like this person because it sounds like she was working on that herself and obviously got busy or whatever it might be and just didn't do anything with it. But yeah, absolutely. If 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 it was broken down like this, so in that case, Q fever, how frequently a worker is exposed to that hazard, um, it might not be frequent. I'm not sure how often they're doing that work, but that's how it helps you understand what the risk is. Now, even though the likelihood of contracting Q fever is really low for that type of work, if someone does contract Q fever, consequence is high, it's a reportable, um, you know, to the health department, uh, 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 health condition. So that brings up your risk rating. So it wasn't a low risk, it was just low likelihood. So mapping your, your psychosocial risk out this way and going through these questions, as you can see, they've got it here, gets you to really think about that and understand the risk more, which will help you prioritize it. So if I was that risk manager, I would have said, okay, Q fever likelihood's low, but if they did get Q fever, pretty bad. So okay, we I need to now escalate that and let people know what that risk looks like so we can at least put some measures in place, whether it be Q fever vaccination, da da. da, da, da. So hopefully that helps answer that for you Ali but I think we've got a slide that looks at the risk matrix there to help people better understand that.
0: Yeah, that's right, we so they should be utilizing something like this to sort of um determine yeah whether something does need more attention like this because it's it's a high high risk even though it was a low likelihood of occurring. Yeah, absolutely. And so um if
1: if you're not currently using any type of risk matrix within your business. You don't have to use a risk matrix, but I think particularly for psychosocial risk, because it's such a new area for everyone and it might not be as obvious what the risk is um, compared to say, like you're looking at a slip risk or a trip hazard or something like that. This risk matrix or using any risk matrix, you can create your own if you like can help you understand what that risk looks like. So first you go, you know, how likely is it that it's going to happen? And so you can use, yeah, like I said, this or something similar um, to help you understand likelihood and consequence. And then, you know, once you match your likelihood and consequence up, so if it's likely but it's a minor, that gives you a high. So you know that you've got a high risk there. And again, once that's mapped out on your risk register, you can see oh, maybe we've got three highs and the rest are medium to low. So, you know, okay, the high ones, we really need to escalate that to management so that they can understand that better and we can start putting some uh, measures in place to manage that as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, so really important to be running these sorts of things through this matrix to help you determine where you need to, you know, focus your energy. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But like I said, you can create your own and we I've done that um, just recently with a client in our education space where we looked at the risk matrix and we said, oh, that's not really helpful because it's very focused on, you know, psychological, I mean, physical risks. the mm. risk matrix that they had. So it was really about adapting that and saying, okay, well, let's come up with our own scale there of what we think those
0: impacts could look like. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And implementation plans what does everyone need to know about them
1: right so um and this has come about the term implementation plan has been introduced by the proposed psychological health regulations in victoria it's the only state that's suggesting that businesses need to do this but i would say everyone should be doing this so think about the process that we've just taken you through leadership commitment setting up a consultative framework or a group that manages this process documenting it on your risk register once you've documented on your risk register you'll that form that we showed you before that section the column that's like what what other controls can be put in place you're just going to be listing those controls so, for for example, if it's sexual harassment, you say, oh, we're not really doing any good training around that or um, maybe, you know, we need to put up a barrier between the public and the staff to reduce the risk of, you know, physical interaction. That's not really saying how the business is going to go about it. It's just some ideas about, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. An implementation plan takes that risk control and then maps it out. So so for sexual harassment, whatever those risk controls look like, how are you going to resource that? What are you going to do? Um, what time frame are you going to give it? So it's really taking your risk controls that you've documented in your risk register and it's creating a strategy or a map for that. So you might have one for sexual harassment, you might have one for vicarious trauma, one for remote and isolated workers. Whatever those risks are that you're wanting to tackle, it's mapping out that approach or that program that you're going to introduce. And that's your path to follow
0: from that point on. I think we've got an example of what that might look like. Um, So I think, Amy, this was this from the Queensland Code? Yeah, so the code of practice again. They all look pretty
1: similar, but in the Queensland code, they've got code for managing psychosocial risk. They've got you know um, a whole range of um, case studies here. But you know, we picked out this one here. So I'm not sure if you want to sort of just give a bit of an overview there. Yeah,
0: about sure. What that
1: scenario is in this case.
0: Yeah, so this one involves a um, call centre, and we just thought that might be perhaps be most relevant to everyone um, on the call in that you might have office workers or different offices. But um, just to summarize the the background um, of this this case study, it involved a a business that had offices in Brisbane and also a regional city. They dealt with um, customer telephone inquiries and complaints. Um, There's no management team located in the regional office and there's not any structured communication between the Brisbane office and the regional one and any people working from home. Um, The workers also have really tightly scripted responses and limited time to talk to customers and they feel under a constant time pressure because there's long queues, there's automatic call drop-ins, so they're feeling pressure all the time. Um, The work is also sort of the same tasks and their breaks are very regimented. Uh, Customers can become abusive due to long waiting times and also a recent restructure occurred and workers are feeling unsure about what that means for them and their roles. Also, a new IT system um, with performance monitoring software is um, making workers anxious because they're worried that they're going to be, um, you know, monitored on that and it could be used against them. They haven't received training on it. So that's sort of the background facts, Amy, there's a lot going on there, but what what are the hazards and, and the risks and controls that, that we should be picking out of that sort of case study? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you can see that they've highlighted what those key risks are. So they've highlighted, you know, the high job demands and the lack of role clarity and job control as well as, you know, that remote and isolated work with a factor of low recognition and reward there. So based on that, then they've moved into some examples of the controls. And I think we, I'm not going to go through every one, of course, I'll just throw out a few. But what I wanted to um, stress at this point in time is that I want everyone to be careful that you do not fall into the trap of relying on training to manage all of your risks. It's very clear within those states that have introduced the legislation or the specific regulations around psychosocial risk, the proposed regulations for Victoria, which specifically state the proposed regulations for Victoria, you cannot jump to controlling the risk through training. Um, you need to look at those higher level of orders of control that are a lot more effective you can absolutely use training but it should be used in combination with a higher level of control and i think that links back to one of the cases you mentioned before where you know um the relying on the person to manage the risk is not enough i was going to say that
0: that's, yeah. that's training in itself isn't it you know you absolutely telling people, do xyz or don't do xyz you've yeah. got to yeah there's more to the obligation than that
1: Totally. And so it's why it's. I think this is what this uh, scenario highlights here is where they've looked at, so you always should look first at how can we change the work environment or the, the way the work is done that helps reduce the risk without relying on the worker to manage it all. So in this particular case here, the scenario, they've said, you know, renegotiating service level agreements and response times So they are more manageable with existing work numbers. So they're actually looking at the system of work and modifying that to take the pressure off. Um, And then, you know, moving into more sort of policy and procedure and training, which again are all really important, but can we reduce the risk through other methods first? So some of the examples there are, uh, you know, allowing workers to terminate a call in accordance with behavior standards so establishing what is the standard of behavior that's acceptable and what's the point that we're going to cut that off and say you're no longer a customer you're actually being abusive and we will end the call so it's empowering staff and giving them the authority to end that call without concerns of any repercussion of their jobs um, and And then providing another one, again, I'm not going to read them all out, but providing emotional support during and following those calls. So making sure there is a, you can't just go, oh, let's give training and throw EAP at people. That's not going to cut it. In this particular case, it's mapping out a really clear um, support structure. So, you know, it could be a debrief in the middle of the day with the supervisor that must happen. Um, so it could be a team debrief or one-on-one um, and then there could be, um, you know, a weekly team debriefs where you're exploring all those scenarios and saying how do we deal with it, can we do it better, so on and so forth. But yeah, again, without going into too much detail in this case, but these um, scenarios in the codes of practice can be super helpful in understanding how you might go about managing certain risks.
0: Yeah, and this, as I said, we'll send out the slides so you can have a look at this example, but in the codes, there are many other scenarios in other industries as well. And so they're definitely helpful to have a read of, have a look at what the hazards could be. But I think, like Amy said, it's thinking a bit more broader in terms of what can be done um, to really eliminate the hazard, if possible, um, and that is over and above things like training and EAP. So that brings us to the end of our um, presentation. I think there's one question, so probably just enough time to look into that. So I'll read that out and Amy, let me know if you wanna answer it and I can give my um, sort of views as well. So the question is, the way some employees act towards all people can cause stress in others whilst not necessarily meeting the definition of bullying. Mm -hmm. Could we end up in a situation where unacceptable behavior is managed through the lens of work health safety rather than through or alongside Codes of conduct or similar. Um, I'll let you respond in a sec, Amy. But I guess my initial thoughts are absolutely, and I think, as I said at the very start, this area is really where health and safety, HR collide, um, and workers themselves have obligations to for their own health and safety and the health and safety of those around them. So I think it can these sort of situations could definitely be managed. Through a health and safety lens, if, it, if it's causing others some sort of distress, um, equally, your codes of conduct probably do talk about acceptable and unacceptable behaviour, even though it might not be bullying. Um, and so I think you could use both to manage these sorts of, of behaviours. Yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to add, Amy?
1: Yeah, so I think we, again, need to be careful that we don't get fall into the trap of those common hazards that were listed on the screen at the start. They're common psychosocial risks. They're not the only ones out there. So um, incivility, misbehavior, whatever you want to call it, workplace relationships are identified on there as a common psychosocial risk. It's essentially anything that's happening in the work environment that can impact someone's psychological health. We know through um, a recent um, Victorian funded uh, WorkWell project we did in retail that we know the impact of um, the lower end of aggression and violence, so misbehavior, so someone rolling their eyes or sighing can be just... frequent interactions with that can be just as impactful to someone's psychological health as one serious incident involving aggression and violence. So yes, at the end of the day, the answer is yes, you would need to categorize that as a potential risk within your risk register. Think about those scenarios. What is the risk? uh, And what controls do we have in place to manage that?
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Amy. So, as I said, that brings us to the end of our presentation. I really hope we've provided some practical tips um, and that there's some content that you can use from the the presentation to help you, um, you know, assess any hazards and risks that you you have in the workplace. Um, There is just one quick other question. What is microaggression? I don't know, Amy, if you have a response to that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure... um... Of the exact definition of that I'm going to assume it is what I was just talking about before it it's probably on that lower end so there's a scale of behavior aggressive behavior Um, I'm assuming that is referring to the lower end so it might not be someone you know attacking you or being really violent but it could be on the lower end of that, so uh, that that's just my assumption without you know um, having a good look at that. But there's nothing within the work health and safety guidance material at the moment that's really pointing to microaggression. So it just would depend on where that terms come from.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks for that, Amy. I don't think there are any other questions, so we'll leave it there. Thanks everyone for attending, and reach out if you have any questions. Thanks so much, Thanks, Amy. Bye. Thanks.